Welcome, my friends, to the Generations Radio Broadcast. Kevin Swanson, your host with you, Adam McManus, from theworldview.com. He hosts it every weekday, and he is with me on this edition of the program. And one of the most interesting developments that came out of the Super Bowl this last Sunday was the series of advertisements produced by a Christian organization called He Gets Us. And... Hobby Lobby's on board. I, I, I'm not sure I understand all the financing that's going on with the He Gets Us campaign, but they're putting something like a billion dollars into this promotional campaign for Jesus. And, you know, it got criticism from one side or the other. Now, we want to be careful that we don't just criticize what everybody's doing. I call to question the strategy of spending a billion dollars but you know what? I don't want a Monday morning quarterback what every other ministry in the world is doing. Um, I wouldn't do it. They're doing it. And uh, there's some pretty engaging advertisements coming out. Do you see the one with the children, Adam? I think you've seen a, several of them yes. online. Neither of us watched the Super Bowl, but we saw it online. Very adorable. you got to admit, that was pretty cute. I mean, those little guys. <laughs> uh, Very well done. One of the scenes that stood out the most was a picture of, I presume, a older brother kneeling down in a men's room to allow his younger brother to stand on his back to reach the urinal. It was really adorable. Yeah, yeah, yeah actually. Uh, it's a rather humorous, you know. And, and, and cute scenes of, of kids. There was the two little ones that were you know, running towards each other and giving um, each other a big hug. And and it, it was done to the song from Patsy Cline. Um, I don't know if you remember that, but that, that song came out, I'm going to say, in 1962. Um, the title. And uh, the name, the title was, I'm trying to remember. The title of it was Be Childlike. Yeah, On the website, hegetsus.com, it says, Back in Jesus' day, children were not regarded the same way they are today. This made his teachings around the value of being childlike countercultural. Jesus taught, quote, Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, end quote. And he lived it out. Childlike in humility, compassion, and gentleness what can we learn from his example today? Okay, so that's it's an example of that's an example of what this uh, promotional campaign is doing, and uh, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul in First Corinthians one twenty three wrote, "We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God." And the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and things are despised, has God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. And all that to say that the cross of Christ is the center. That's the point at which he humbled himself, uh, which you know is not impressive to the Jews or to the Greeks. And yet that was the means by which he brought about our salvation, Adam. Yes. And so 
ultimately your take on he gets us this Super Bowl campaign is you would not have spent a billion dollars, but did you like the message that they were communicating specifically, let's say, in that childlike television ad? Yeah, to the extent that he's speaking of the humility and the faith of a little child, because ultimately that's what Jesus is commending in Matthew chapter 18. He says, you know, we got to have the faith of a little child if we're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So that, that the faith of a child is, is the key thing. Uh, that's the thing that matters. Now, I think the ad had a little bit more to say about, you know, children are being kind to each other, which actually, as it turns out in my family, it's not always the case. <laughs> you know, probably the, the best, yeah, mine too. <laughs> the best example that children give to us is that they have a childlike faith, a childlike trust in mom and dad. And that's what God wants from us. He wants us to trust him as if we were two, three, four, and five-year-olds trusting their mom and dad. And I think that's the lesson that uh, we want to convey, you know, that, that we want to pick up off of a, uh, a spot like that. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think what we're seeing here with this example is that, uh, that there's some simple lessons that are being conveyed. And I guess, you know, you know how I am. I, I want to get to the gospel. You know, I want to get to, okay, so why did Jesus come? You know, not just to be kind to one another, you know, and actually he did come to heal. He came to, um, to, to give food to people who are hungry. And, you know, we see that, and that's a beautiful picture of the kindness and the mercy and the love of God. But, you know, I'm constantly thinking, okay, and, and so let's get to the real thing. He came to save us. You know, we're in trouble right. down here. From our sins. We're in big trouble down here, and he comes in an amazing cosmic rescue mission to save us from sin and the consequences of sin. So now, I think the intention of these guys is that people are going to, you know, get a little bit of an interest in Jesus, and maybe that will lead them to an evangelistic meeting and perhaps to um, to come to know Christ. The other ad that was definitely played on the Super Bowl was Love Your Enemies. And again, there's not any verbiage on this outside of music and what lyrics might be in the music. But in this minute-long one about Love Your Enemies, we see a lot of people angry or fighting or pointing fingers and getting upset with each other. The verbiage that goes along with it on the website, hegetsus.com, under Love Your Enemies, they write, we see conflict all around us. We align ourselves on different sides of the fight in battles of politics, religion, justice, and too often we let that conflict morph from a dignified defense of something good into a dehumanizing attack on the people we don't agree with. It's tearing us apart. But Jesus offered us an alternative as an example, and his solution was not to grow apathetic and avoid the conflict altogether. He showed us something else entirely, a third way. His response to the ever-increasing volume of hate and conflict was love, not just any love, confounding, sacrificial, selfless love. You see, Jesus still stood up for what he believed in. He defended the defenseless, spoke up on behalf of the voiceless, even flipped a few tables. But in everything he did, he first moved with love toward the people he disagreed with. What if we tried to love our enemies the way Jesus loved his? 
How would it change the tenor of our conflicts and our conversations? And I think, Kevin, you could rightly conclude that the reference there to defending the defenseless on behalf of the speaking up for the voiceless, I think that might be, if you read between the lines, a reference to abortion, interestingly. So I think Hobby Lobby's role in all this is a, a redemptive one. Yeah, and of course, I would just simply say that, uh, you know, Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. He came to die on the cross for our sins. Uh, he came to point out that we are in trouble, and he came to solve that problem by his death and resurrection. And so, yeah, I would simply say, you, you, you still got to go to the next point at some point. And I'm not sure this campaign is doing that yet. But, uh, but that's all I would say is we got to add something to it. And I think at points you have to be somewhat cautious with the way you use words. As, as you and I talked about offline, uh, they, they've used some catchwords in, you know, in their uh, advertising. And it, sometimes that's up for grabs. It's up for definition. So what do you mean by that? Some on the left would say, yeah, absolutely, Jesus is pro-justice. And on the other side, people say, yeah, Jesus is pro-justice. Uh, but what does, what does he do with injustice, and what is injustice? Injustice is, well, abortion, as you and I would agree. But, uh, but others would say, uh, no, 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 uh, injustice is not redistributing enough of the wealth. <laughs> you know, so you've got, you've got those differences in definitions. And as you know, the proof is in the pudding and the devil's in the details. Of the hashtags they have at the very bottom of the page of hegetsus.com are the words love, hope, struggle, justice, activist, forgiveness, about us, outrage, reaction, refugee, women, relationships, inclusive, judgment, and real life. Of those, the most buzzy potentially woke word among the hashtags is the word inclusive. Now, it typically today in our modern day woke society represents pro-homosexual and an embrace of the critical race theory that there is this concern about white supremacy and there's systemic racism within everything. However, I think taken in its whole, I would say that the word in this particular context, I think probably is a more of a reference to the idea that Jesus was inclusive of the prostitutes and the tax collectors and loved the unlovable. But it is certainly a buzzword. And if I were in charge of the He Gets Us campaign and, give, and, and I was the one giving the billion dollars, I would not have included the word inclusive because I think it unnecessarily muddies the waters. Well, and let me close the discussion with this. I think always when we think of mission strategies, and this applies to anybody, I'm not just pointing at one particular ministry, but simply asking the question, what's the objective? Uh, to get people to like us, to unify American society around a meaningless set of values, or to get people curious about the faith, to get them interested in their need for a savior to get people saved from their sins. And our modern Christian world is oftentimes too superficial. Put it in the microwave, you've done your job. 
Uh, revivalism did that as well. And uh, so I think the goal, the objective that we need to keep coming back to, especially as a Christian church, is discipleship. And that's been our focus as a ministry. And it, it, it's, it's not just our focus as a ministry. It's the commission. Disciple them. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. That's what he told us to do. We've got to get to that. And whether or not this approach will will get to discipleship, I don't know. But discipling is what matters. Discipling the nations involves thousands of hours with one person or three people. As an example, the Apostle Paul would spend two to three years in Ephesus or Corinth in one place teaching every day, I'd say 20, 30, 40, 50 hours a week. Uh, we need to get beyond the 15-second spot, and that's the responsibility of the local church. Americans have less and less interest in the local church and long-term discipleship, but that's that's the goal. That's the objective. That's what we need in our families. And that's what I focused on for the last, I'm going to say, 14 years of my ministry. I've got six men and one discipleship group that's been going on now for two years, three days a week, about 500 hours into those men so far. I've got five men in another discipleship group that's been going on for four years I've got four men in another discipleship group that's been going on for about three years. And what I do, Adam, is I get up early this morning at uh, 5.30 and I make breakfast burritos. I just figured it out. I've made close to 900 breakfast burritos. (laughs) Wow. I'm just that good with it. (laughs) Make the burritos. I've got my own recipe. I really like my recipe. I could knock it out in 13 minutes, you know. I mean, I've got it down to a science now. Um, if anybody wants to know my recipe, but you know, that's what I bring into the discipleship group on a Tuesday or Thursday morning, and uh, we just, you know, we just get into the Word, get the Word into us, and uh, pray together. I don't do a lot of prep, but we have right now. We're going through a Tozer book and a book by John Owen. Uh, so you know, we go through books, uh, but we always start with Scripture and then close in prayer. And everybody prays. That's one of the rules. Anyway, discipleship. Let's stick with it, friends. That's the strategy. Stay on it. Stay on it. We'll be back with more in just a moment on the Generations Broadcast. You know, busyness has a way of creeping into our lives. As dads, it can leave us longing for moments of one-on-one time with our sons to simply talk. And those moments can be tough to come by. I get it. That's one of our top goals for our annual summer father-son retreat in the Colorado mountains. To provide quality time for you to connect with your son, can you think of anything more important for your schedule next year? If you are looking for an opportunity to bond, to really bond with your son, then join me, Kevin Swanson, and hundreds of other fathers and sons from across the country next August. But be sure to register soon because we max out the camp every year and we're already filling up. Go to coloradofatherson.com today and choose one of the two weekends available before they are full. Lord willing, I will be there and it will be a great opportunity to meet you and your son. This is your chance to secure the lowest price for this event. So go to coloradofatherson.com and register today. And we're back on Generations. Kevin Swanson, Adam McManus as well. And I want to follow up on this discipleship approach, especially for the millennial generation. We did a survey called the Gen 2 survey, I'm going to say eight years ago, and the the number one most important element relating to the churches that did well 
with the millennials over the last 20 years, almost every denomination lost significantly on the millennia on the millennials. And I'm talking about the Baptists, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the on and on and on. There was one exception, and that was churches that were most likely to disciple and develop a relational, accountable relationship with the young people involved. Those were the churches that actually had an increase in participation for the millennial generation in the before-after numbers. This is one of the most interesting studies, I think, anybody's ever done, at least in terms of how much you know survey has been done on the millennial generation. This was the most interesting data I have ever seen relating to church attendance. And that is the millennial generation has left every denomination except for serious denominations that are putting the time into discipleship. That is, they're not just doing youth groups, they're not just doing Sunday schools, they're not just doing some superficial programs. They're addressing young people, they're discipling them, they're walking with them, they're holding them accountable. That question was a key question. If your church was likely to do that, those particular denominations or local churches, in many cases, they were the non-denoms. In some cases, they were the Reformed Presbyterians, Reformed Baptists, etc., non-denoms. But generally, the old-line denominations all doing very badly. But if the local church was likely to do discipleship and hold those young people accountable and develop a relational connection, those particular churches were growing in the midst of the greatest apostasy we have experienced in the Western world, I think in the history of the Christian church. Well, so discipleship to me is key, absolutely key. And, you know, I think there's hope with the young generation. I think they are more than happy to connect. A lot of them are so isolated. They've been, you know, isolated in the hermetically sealed environment of the modern media. And it's extremely isolating, extremely uh, de-relationalizing, depersonalizing. And so if we can cross that boundary, not with some mega program, but with a one-on-one, one-on-three, one-on-five discipleship approach, wow. I think our little church of 250 people probably has 14 small groups going on throughout the week for young men, young women, mainly young men, young women. Some Older men and women are involved, some families involved in some of the programs, not so much programs, but discipleship approaches. And it's to me, this is what's happening. This is where there is some real spiritual advancement and some real development within the Church of Jesus Christ in this uh, postmodern age. Um, and so here's good news, bad news from this uh, survey done by the Walton Family Foundation. I think that's the Walmart people. Um, why don't you go over some of this? You covered this a couple days ago in the theworldview.com. The report on Gen Zers found only 10% of young people between the ages of 15 and 25 call themselves conservative, compared to 26%, almost three times as many of their elders over 26. But here's the, the good news. We just talked about the bad news. Here's the good news. But 18% still among the Gen Zers attend church regularly. And that's similar to the rest of the population. And a slightly higher percentage of Gen Zers claim to be evangelical, believing in uh, the importance of the Great Commission, our depravity before God in terms of our sin nature, the bodily resurrection from the dead of Jesus and his having died in our place for our sin. 
Only 9% claim to be liberal Protestant among the Gen Zers, 15 to 25, while 23% of the older population claim to be liberal Protestant. And 16% of Gen Zers, this is not a shocker, this is the bad news, identify with some kind of sexual perversion compared to 4% of the older population. Yeah. Yeah, so you got the good, the bad, and the ugly. You've got some good stuff. You've got some bad stuff. You've got some good things happening over here on the right, some bad things happening over here on the left or the wrong side. Um, it's a mix. And, of course, that's the way it always is. So, you know, but 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 there's some positives here. Did you notice one of the most significant things is they're leaving the liberal Protestant denominations. Did you notice that? I mean, you know, 23% older population still hanging out with the old decrepit liberal churches. That's only 9% for the Gen Zers, which means they're leaving the churches that are compromised, the churches that are dead and dying. They're leaving those churches, oftentimes turning into atheists and agnostics or the nuns, right? They're turning into the nun group. But at the same time, the evangelical side of the Gen Zers is still doing very well. Thank you very much. In fact, a slightly better than the older population, meaning that it could be the evangelicals are gaining. On the Gen Zers. And I wonder if you look at the March for Life just as a snapshot that I think is revealing, the predominant demographic that is represented there are certainly the Gen Zers, 15 to 25. I mean, it is, I would say, having marched in it once in Washington, D.C. myself a number of years ago when I covered it for the radio station here in San Antonio, and having heard uh, interviews from those who have organized them and walked in the marches, the enthusiasm among the Gen Zers who identify as Christians and want to follow the Lord, they're passionate. And I think on that particular issue, they're more passionate because their mother could have aborted them. They've been given the blessing of life because their mother could have chosen otherwise. Well, I think the moral of the story is that the uh, the compromised, the the anemic, the blah, the, the element of the church that isn't doing anything is collapsing. And the younger generation is, well, either getting radical on the left or radical on the right. <laughs> that That's what appears to be happening with the Gen Z generation. And we've got a great opportunity here. Now, it's also interesting. Let me close on this. American Enterprise Institute did a long, long study on the decline of the Christian church in America over about 100 years. In fact, in some of their work, they went all the way back, say, 250 years ago. But a uh, very interesting report. If anybody wants a link on that, just email me. But American Enterprise Institute did this thing, and their conclusion was, why, why did the faith die out, or why did it decline in America so substantially, especially over the last 40 to 50 years? That, that's the question they were answering. And I, my understanding is this is somewhat of a secular organization, the American Enterprise Institute. Um, and their conclusion was that government destroys religion when it imposes religion through the churches, through control of the state church, or imposing a secular worldview religion in the schools. So 
This is the way they put it. Government may be the cause of declining religiosity. Expansions in government service provision and especially increasingly secularized government control of education significantly drive secularization and can account for virtually the entire increase in secularization around the developed world. The decline is religiosity in America is not the product of a natural change in preferences, but an engineered outcome of clearly identifiable policy choices in the past. And that's something that's like that's what we've been trying to say for the last 15 years, except putting right. a little bit higher falutin language. It's incredible to look at the ebb and flow of just the names that are picked by the the new parents of each successive century in America, isn't it? Isn't that revealing? 1792, 90% of children were named religious names. 1980, 55% of children were named religious names. And by 2020, just three years ago now, 32% of children were given religious names. What conclusion do you draw from that? Well, that's just one indication that the American Christian denominator has been seriously eroded over a period of 250 years. You know, we have seen a massive cultural shift in America. There's no question about that. And what this organization, American Enterprise Institute, is saying, and by the way, those stats came from that report, but what the American Enterprise Institute is saying is that that comes about largely by government policy trying to control the minds, the hearts, the souls of the next generation by a distinctively secular form of education in which their worldview is going to be a naturalistic, materialistic, evolutionary type of worldview. And as, as long as that has been imposed on the public schools over a period of 40, 50, 60 years, there is a concomitant decline in church attendance, church involvement, a belief in the basic doctrines of Christianity. And they attribute that to government power, government control over the public schools. And here's the moral of the story for this program, friends. I know we've said it before, but number one, first thing we need to do is get our kids out of the public schools. Secondly, Invest in discipleship, invest in discipleship, invest in discipleship. Start with family discipleship as you sit in the house, as you walk by the way, as you rise up, as you lie down. And then let's be sure that pastors everywhere are engaging in discipleship of the young people. It's not just the job of Campus Crusade and the Navigators. It's the job of every pastor. Invite the young people into your home. Let's be sure that Older ladies are teaching the younger ladies and discipling them. We just had uh, a sister in the church. She's a little bit older, and she's you know got a lot of great resources. She used navigator resources and such, but she's got a small group of four or five young ladies that she's doing some discipleship with now. And I'm so thankful that there is a passion on the part of the older women and the older men to engage, to throw their lives over the barbed wire, to help the younger generation, disciple the younger generation, uh, establish relationship, put the time into it, and disciple them in a relational context. And I hope that's happening, first in families, secondly in churches. If that happens, friends, we're going to see a remnant. We're going to see something substantial develop for the uh, Gen Zers and the millennial generation. Well, that wraps up this edition of the Generations Broadcast. Friends, I'd encourage you to my book, Family Life, to get a better picture of what I'm talking about when I talk about the discipleship approach that Jesus recommends for families and churches 
So check out uh, the book Family Life, available at generations.org. This is Kevin Swanson and Adam McManus inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation.